Ask for a favor. Uh huh. Can I hear you say, come on? Kawaii. Come on. Kawaii. Come on. Kawaii. No. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Listen, I love Drew Brown from Pittsburgh. Come on. But his friends are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Not ramping down. We're just getting started. Nothing stops this train. Thank you. God bless. And come on. Welcome, whether it's welcome for the first time or a hearty welcome back to the Come On Network podcast, episode 21 today, as we take a break from NFL action and the Pittsburgh Steelers action. Of course, we were supposed to have episode 21 be the preview for the Titans contest in week four, uh, but of course that did not happen. It would have been then the preview for the Philadelphia Eagles contest on Sunday coming up. We'll have that one later for you in the week, but we wanted to take a pause from football and try something a little bit new today, or at least adapt to how we usually do things on the Come On Network podcast. So episode 21 will cover the news and notes around Major League Baseball, as well as serve as an autopsy report for the 2020 season for the Pittsburgh Pirates and what was a season that probably a lot of people, including us, would like to forget. Maybe some good things came out about it. We'll talk a little bit about that throughout this episode. As always, thanks for the subscribe, the streams, the downloads, the ratings, and reviews. You can find us on any device that gets internet or wherever you get and consume your podcast, be that Apple, Spotify, Anchor, or another. Also, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, at Network. That's at Comon, C-O-M-O-N, Network, N-E-T-W-O-R-K. On Twitter and Instagram, you can also find us on the web, Network. There you can find blog stories, Features, columns, hot takes, podcast episodes. You can learn more about our team. And But let's dive in, gentlemen. Like we said, we're going to try something a little bit different in terms of a format. We don't really have a set-in-stone list of what we want to talk about during episode 21 here, but we do know that we want to cover the Pirates season. We do know that we want to talk about the MLB as a whole as, as we go into the AL and NLDS series that are even happening as we record this. The Astros and the Oakland Athletics are in battle as we speak. But a lot to unwrap with this 2020 season and a lot to put a bow on in a lot of senses with the Pittsburgh Pirates and what was just an absolutely atrocious year for all accounts. Uh, maybe a couple bright spots here and there, but uh, like I said, we'll change the format. We're kind of just going to leave this into an open discussion and try to let the personalities of our panel here shine out a little bit more. Kyle Dawson, Donnie Tredrick, Ryan Simpson, Joe Smeltzer alongside. Gentlemen, let's dive in the Pirates 2020 season. Yeah, I think there's two ways you can look at it uh the first way is that it was an atrocious season and i think with a 19 and 41 record obviously that qualifies as a failure at least from the surface but the second way to look at it and i think this is more and more becoming the way i'm seeing things is that and this is going to sound really weird considering how crazy 2020 has been boards world and everywhere else in the world but this season actually in a way was kind of a return to sanity somewhat for the pirates Let's go back to last year. The Pirates had a lousy team that also struggled with clubhouse turmoil, turmoil, excuse me, front office turmoil, and obviously the Felipe Vasquez situation, which is a new category of turmoil. And on top of all of this, the team stunk. This year, the team stunk, but it didn't have all the baggage that last season did. You didn't have players fist fighting. You didn't have you didn't have fans, at least the sensible fans, calling for the heads of. Derek Sheldon and Ben Sherrington the way they were with Clint Hurdle. And on a really positive note, at least the team was bad enough to get the number one pick. So obviously it wasn't a good season for the Pirates, and I don't think anybody would argue that it was. But again, as crazy as it sounds, I actually think this organization is in a much less hectic and much kind of uh, more stable spot than it was in 2019. I don't know if the players are best buddies as of yet, but at least they're not fighting each other in the clubhouse, which they were last year. So all around, just from how players are acting off the field, we have the O'Neill Cruz situation, obviously, but that's not a player that is on the 25-man roster. And also how things are going on in the front office, I think, last season with how Clint Hurdle was fired before the end of the year and how that all was handled. 
how Neil Huntington was fired at kind of a random time. Uh, now you have a manager and a general manager and a team president that all have time to improve this team. And nothing's going to happen over a pass as of right now, whether it be the limited talent or the front office. And I think overall, it's just the record doesn't show it, but I think this organization is in a better spot than it was 365 days ago at this point. I don't know if you guys will agree with that, but I'm kind of seeing uh, kind of the more optimist, uh, more contrary view, as opposed to the easier view to see this season was that 19 wins and it's just a total failure. No, I mean, I agree, Joe. Um, obviously, it's easy to look at the Pirates record and say, man, that season was absolute dog shit. But at the end of the day, that at least we have a clear direction that the team and the organization is going now. We have Sheldon, who, for better or for worse, is going to learn how to manage. And if he doesn't learn quick, he's going to get outed. We have a GM who didn't have a lot of talent to even try to make a move at the deadline and just kind of stayed put and made these little minor moves to see how they worked out. He has a very good superstar in the making in Brian Hayes, who, which we could all rant and rave about for 35 minutes if we wanted to. I mean, the guy legitimately is going to get rookie of the year votes and he played a third of the season, which is astronomically good. Um, you have Stallings who they put their trust in getting rid of Diaz and saying, hey, you're the guy. Do what you want with it. The guy might win a gold glove this year. And if you would have told me last year, hey, Jake Stallings might be in the running to win a gold glove, I would have laughed in your face. I would not have believed you. But he put in the work. He did a good job. And I'm totally fine with him being the, the starting catcher for this Pirates team. And then you have whatever arm issues that the entire pitching staff experienced. But once again, too, at the beginning of the year, I think all of our predictions for the wins were around 2025 for the Pirates. Somehow they got to 19 with all the injuries they had. Like, that's kind of a win in my eyes. I mean, this team was hurt all the time. And seeing kind of how the NFL injury plague is slowly working its way into the league, I'm surprised that the MLB didn't experience that same kind of wave. Like, it seemed like the Pirates had a lot of injuries just because that's the team that we all follow. Um, but I'd really like to go back and kind of see how the rest of the MLB handled all the injuries. Um, but yeah, I mean, the pirate season was atrocious. It is what it is. Uh, we're officially in this rebuild mode as we have been for two or three years, but at least we have a clear direction that we're going now. Like as somebody who appreciates like baseball history, you need to have a starting point in saying, Hey, this is when a new regime came in. This is when the team was very, very bad, but at least we saw what was going to be built in the future. And I think that's kind of where we sit here in 2020 after the season. I never thought I would say, thank God, a season was only 60 games, but thank God the season was only 60 games. I could not have watched this pirate, this current Pirates team for a buck 62 uh, in 2020. Very, very few bright spots. Uh, Ryan and Joe, you guys touched on them. Jacob Stallings had a, a very good year, probably uh, what will go down as his best year in the majors. He, Brian Hayes, a superstar in the making, an, an electric fielder at third base uh, to hold down the hot corner, showing some great things at the plate. Now, he had a war of 1.8. I know he only had 85 at-bats, but uh, he, he was he was pretty good in, in the time that he was at the plate. Five dingers, uh, 376 batting average. I know it's a very small sample size, but he certainly provided some things that uh, we had to look forward to. Otherwise, it was really hard to watch this team at times. Uh, there were times that I was – negatively interested in throwing on a pirate game uh, unless I really had nothing else to watch. Hopefully that'll change in 2021. Uh, I think things can only get better. And, you know, the fact that the pirates have the number one overall pick and we should know who they're going to pick for quite a while. Uh, hopefully they deliver on that and give some optimism for the future. Yeah. I thought you know, I can echo a lot of what you guys said, and we can kind of openly discuss this a little bit too, as we go on, throughout this episode and, and trying to break down what was this 2020 year. Uh, number one for me being Jacob Stallings had a really good year, uh, especially so defensively. I know Derek Shelton for, for weeks and weeks kind of plugged Jacob Stallings into the gold glove candidacy. Uh, I think he'll end up probably getting some votes. Heck, maybe he wins the award. I know they're not typically or they're not voting for that award like they typically do. They're allowing kind of the stat cast and, and the numbers to tell you who the Gold Glove Award winner is. So that should point good signs to Jacob Stallings. And, I mean, he hit around 250. He hit a couple home runs. 
uh, drove in, you know, a bunch of runs for this, this Pirates team and, and otherwise at a team that offensively was just kind of pathetic all year, maybe with the exception of Key Brian Hayes and uh, Eric Gonzalez tapered off towards the end, but he was really good for the first half or so of this 60-game schedule. Uh, other than that, Brian Reynolds, not good enough. Uh, I know he had a lot to go on personally, which I think the mental side of baseball is a huge part of the discussion. Uh, but seven homers probably says a little bit more about his season than it should have. I uh, only hit a buck 89, 275 on base percentage. Uh, his Wobo is, is 273, just not a very good year for Brian Reynolds. Uh, Josh Bell, we could go on and on and on about how bad he was this season. Of course, he ends up picking up his batting average by close to 25, 30 points towards the end of the year in the final week or two. Uh, so he turned some things on towards the end, but he, he flat out wasn't good enough. And I think Gregory Polanco just struck out another four times today, even though the Pirates aren't playing. So uh, that happened as well. The, the pitching staff was what it was. Uh, I thought the bullpen for the most part was actually a pretty good bright spot for this team uh, after the first couple weeks of the season. I thought Chris Stratton had a really good year. Uh, of course, there are other guys that had good years as well. Towards the end, I really liked uh, what we saw some from the new guys. Jeff Hartley for a lot of the year was really good. Uh, Blake Cedarland I thought was really good in the couple appearances he made. And Richard Rodriguez ended up being pretty good for him as well. Uh, so I think there's some pieces in that bullpen. I don't think this organization – is as worse off as a lot of people think they are. There are some really good prospects in the pipeline uh, that are going to end up making an impact for this team in the next couple of years. I just wonder how far the Pirates are away from actually competing. Uh, and I think Key Brian Hayes, little did we know a month ago, we, we didn't think the bat would translate to the MLB level, or maybe there were questions. If not, the bat would transfer up to the MLB level. But I think in the small sample size we got, it shows flashes of brilliance from Key Brian Hayes. Uh, good approach, hitting the ball hard, spraying it all over the field. That's always a good thing. Um, and, of course, the defense is going to be there. I mean, he just makes it look easy over at third base. So I think there are pieces on this Pirates team and in this organization. But I think, again, the key going forward, and we've talked about this, guys, is, is Ben Sherrington and his staff. And, and they've made some front office changes even Today, as we record this, uh, Nick Leva's gone. He's been working in player development for the last couple of years. Uh, and there's some other guys. I think the head athletic trainer who's been there for 20 years. And then the strength coach is also gone, at least in the round of cuts today. Uh, they were involved in those. But uh, as they try to shape this organization, as they try to shape this front office regime, I think there's still a lot of things that are, are left unanswered after 60 games in 2020. But for me, it comes down to Ben Charrington drafting and developing well and his staff doing that. Starts with the number one pick this upcoming year, and, and that, in all reality, should be Kumar Rocker from Vanderbilt, which there's a couple really good players at the top, but Kumar Rocker, to me, is, is a guy that can make an impact within the next year or two at the big league level, so we'll have to see with that, but I don't know if that's something that maybe we can talk about, too, but uh, drafting and developing is a huge part of, of this turnaround for the Pirates, and I think you need buy-in from the owner. I don't know if you get that, but you're going to eventually need buy-in from the owner, too, if this team's going to be of anything in the next couple of years. Yeah, and I'm not really too worried about the drafting aspect of the Pirates rebuilding. A, because Ben Charrington can draft. He proved that he can draft when he was the GM of the Red Sox. And B, a lot of people wouldn't agree with me on this, but Neil Huntington was good at drafting, too. You look at who the Pirates drafted under Huntington, Tyler Glass now, Josh Bell, Garrett Cole. Those three guys, Austin Meadows, like any t Austin Meadows too. Those four of those guys, any anybody in the league would kill to have that type of draft record. Jameson Tyon, another one, although he's been bit by the injury bug. So the Pirates have been able to draft pretty well for the past decade or so. The problem has been that these guys have good careers only after they leave the Pirates, and that's a fault on the Pirates player development system. The biggest thing I'm worried about is how the Pirates will develop these draft picks. I think they had a good draft in 2020, Charrington's first, with Nick Gonzalez leading the way with the number eight pick. I think it's pretty obvious they're going to draft Kumar Rocker from Vanderbilt. That's a guy that, while nobody's can't miss, he certainly has that can't miss tag. And I think the Pirates and any baseball team in this position will be smart enough to take Rocker from Vanderbilt number one overall. I think that's a slam dunk. But the real question is, can the Pirates develop these players? Because the past several years, they've proven time and time again that they can't. And I think getting rid of Nick Leva, who's working in player development, I think if you get rid of anybody that's been 
in player development from 2019 or prior. That's a step forward because it shows how seriously you're taking that aspect of the minor leagues. The Pirates aren't a team that has big league talent that you can pawn off and get minor league players out of it. I always cite the Chicago White Sox as an example. As bad as they were, as bad as they were for most of the 2010s, they still had guys like Chris Sale, Cy Young caliber pitcher. They turned him into Yoan Mancana and Michael Kopech. Jose Quintana, very good number two starter, turned him into Eloy Jimenez. Lucas Giolito, they got because they were able to trade Adam Eaton for him. So the Pirates don't have those type of big league players that they could trade and get top blue chip prospects out of. And what that means is that while drafting and developing is always important for small market teams, it's even more important for the Pirates because you don't have big time players that you can trade and get top top prospects out of at the snap of a finger. It just can't happen. Maybe Josh Bell was that type of player this time last year. He's not that type of player this time this year. His value has never been lower. Other guys, Brian Reynolds is still young. You don't want to trade him. Mitch Keller is still young. Kevin Newman wouldn't get you very much. And the rest of the players just really aren't worth trading and getting a big return out of. So the key thing is to develop. I believe in Charrington drafting. I believe in the Pirates drafting. The Pirates have drafted well for the past several years. But what it comes down to is developing these players so that when they become studs at the level, they're wearing the pirate uniform and not. No, and I can echo that sentiment, Joe. I mean, I can agree in some places and disagree in others. It's like, I want to work in player development in baseball. Like, for, for those listening, I went to school at Penn State uh, and got a degree in statistics, and I want to work in baseball and player development. Um, this past year, I was lucky enough to help. Uh, the Penn State baseball team and watch how a D1 baseball program runs and how they try to help their athletes. And to counter argue you, Joe, it's not the player development system that's an issue because obviously Tyone and Meadows and Bell, all these guys that we can run down the list of the Pirates drafted were good enough to get to the major leagues. Once they got to the major leagues is when they sucked. So it is not the development process. It is the major league coaching staff and the plan that they have in place for those players. You have a guy like Garrett Cole who gets drafted. You see him shove the whole way through the minors. And then as soon as you get to the majors, you go, hey, by the way, that four-seamer you throw, that's absolute gas. Don't worry about throwing that ever again. Just throw sinkers. Just throw sinkers. Pitch the contact. Like, how are you not playing to your strength there? And that is something that, infuriates me being a numbers guy is like okay look at what they did in every level of baseball what was successful what was not successful why on earth would you change a guy's arsenal as soon as he gets to the major league level after absolutely dominating the minor leagues that doesn't make logical sense to me like I don't know how the Pirates coaching staff could go you know what Garrett Cole is the same kind of talent as Charlie Morton he's the same kind of talent as Frankie Liriano. Like, that's just not even they're, – they're so, so different. Like, you have this guy who you can absolutely shove, but you're going to go, you know what, team philosophy, we're sticking with this. We don't care what your name is, where we picked you. That is how you lose baseball games. That is how you lose fans, and that is how you lose support. Not using an individualized approach, and I think that's one of the things, actually, that uh, the, this staff does really well with, with Derek Shelton uh, and, and his pitching staff and everyone that's involved with the big league level now is using an individualized approach seems to be the way to go. I mean, why does Garrett Cole leave and all of a sudden they discover that he has a four-seam fastball that we knew he had all along? Uh, to use Ryan's example, Tyler Glass now is the same way. Uh, Austin Meadows is the same way. And, and he was blocked a little bit. We've talked about that for years as Pirates fans uh, as to saying Austin Meadows probably never had a spot in this outfit. But we also didn't think Gregory Polanco, who, by the way, just struck out another three times. Uh, we didn't think he'd be as bad as he was. Um, and, and has been, and he's never turned in anything. So Austin Meadows realistically would have taken that right field spot from him and I think been a cornerstone of this Pirates team for years to come. But uh, here we are. Neil Huntington goes and trades him and Tyler Glass now for Chris Archer, who doesn't even pitch in 2020, will be bought out or, or be served $11 million on a check to come and pitch next year in 2021 and, and not be any good. And, and there are other guys that are that instance as well. But I think Ryan hit the nail on the head with, with this Pirates team is a lot of people bitch and moan about 
that the fact that they won't spend money and they won't go get the big name free agent. I got news for you. They're never going to do that with Bob Nutting. We're, you're never going to see an $100, $200 million player sign with the Pirates. They have to have the individualized approach. They have to develop. They have to then take those guys that are good in, in the minor leagues and make them be good in the big leagues. I mean, these guys are talented enough to do it. I just feel like it. And Donnie's seen the pipeline working with the Black Bears, and, and we've all followed them as well, just being big Pirate fans, maybe more so than the average fan. But there's no reason why this team can't have success with the guys that are in the minor leagues right now. Like I said it earlier, I think there's a bunch of good prospects pitching, hitting, that are down in the minors right now, whether they were in satellite or whether they had taken the year off with, with COVID and everything. But uh, I think that's the bigger problem for me with, with the Pirates. And that was what I had a problem with Clint Hurdle and, and Ray Searage and his regime for the longest time. Not everyone's a, a candidate to be a reclamation project. That's the only thing Ray Searage could have going for him towards the end of his career with the Pirates as the pitching coach. And uh, to me, that's the bigger problem than not spending money in free agency. Maybe I'm just off base. Yeah, and I think a great example of kind of what the post-race series era as far as the Pirates pitching staff can be is Joe Musgrove. You look at Joe Musgrove's numbers this year, okay, you're not going to see any great. But last year and the year before that, his first two years with the Pirates, he was mainly kind of pound the strike zone with two seam fastballs. This year, he threw his curveball a lot more, threw the curveball a lot. I think I saw on MLB Network today that his curveball was one of the top five most used pitches this season. He threw it over 50% of the time, and as a result, you're getting a lot more strikeouts, you're getting a lot more swing and miss stuff, and you're getting more signs of the dominant pitcher that maybe Joe Musgrove can be down the line for the Pirates. I think that Oscar Marine did a great job this season with the starting rotation and with the bullpen. You saw Chad Cole and Steven Brault, I think both exceeded expectations as far as what they could do in this starting rotation. And that's definitely a big aspect of how long it will take for the Pirates to get to where they were five, six years ago is how fast can Oscar Marine kind of pick up the pieces left by Ray Searage and turning this pitching staff around and actually getting the most out of the talent in mission and in the bullpen. I think Musgrove was kind of a good example of what a pitcher can be if he changes the pitching style he had when Serge was here. And I don't know what your guys' thoughts are on that, but I think Marine and, and his strategies as far as getting the most out of pitchers are kind of a wild card in the Pirates' uh, road to um, – a road to more success in the next few years. I never really know what to make out of the Pirates rotation because in years past, we saw some pretty good things out of, uh, especially a guy like Trevor Williams, who had a very bad 2020, uh, given that it was only a 60-game season. He at least went out on a high note. Uh, he had a very good start in his last start, which I, I think just about every starting pitcher in this rotation was very good in his final start or two. Uh, the, the other thing with that is is you know, the whole new era sort of thing, which, you know, I, I get you have to protect these guys, but I feel like sometimes overmanaging uh, takes place. You know, not that I'm you know, done with Derek Shelton or anything. I think he can do good things in Pittsburgh. But, you know, if you have a guy who's just totally rolling on the mound, he's literally not being hit by the other team. Uh, I know Mitch Keller did that, but he was just coming off an injury, so they wanted to get him out there. His arm's not going to fall off if he throws 80 pitches. Like, it's not going to detach from his body if he throws 80 pitches in a game. Uh, I mean, walking eight guys in five innings doesn't help either. Right, and I get that. But, but it's, it's also the fact that that was his final start of the year, as well, I know we're going to have uh, maybe a shorter off season, even though it's going to line up to be just about the same. But it's things like that that frustrate me. Whenever the Pirates can pick up wins in games like that, and then the moment he's gone, the game's out of hand. You know, the, the other team just takes over. We saw it a few weeks ago uh, in Keller's final start. No, I can agree. Like something I would like to see with this pitching staff is kind of a complete shakeup. I mean, as much as Brault and Chad Cool look phenomenal in their last starts of the year, I do not see them in the starting rotation next season. I think Brault is a long slash middle reliever kind of guy. 
and Chad Cool can absolutely hurl it. So guess what? He's the eighth inning, maybe the ninth inning guy. I if we get rid of Rich Tron. I wholeheartedly agree on both of those accounts. Exactly. Like you, you have Cool, who is this almost hothead personality when he gets in that game. Use that to your advantage. Put him back in that bullpen and let him be Rick Vaughn and just have him be Wild Thing if you really want to. Like, have him embrace that personality. Don't have them go out there for four or five innings and try to keep cool and try to maintain his composure. Use that fire. Like, that is something that also – Him going after Javi Baez was awesome. Exactly. And that's something that you're slowly starting to see across every team in the MLB is they have one – clown slash troll and the pirates don't have any personality right now you might say musgrove just because he does a lot of outreach stuff and he's not afraid to like be goofy but there's not one guy on this pirates team that i'm like i can't wait to see him hit a bomb and watch it or he's gonna make a diving catch and start shouting and screaming yeah not on the field they don't i mean trevor williams is a guy like that that's off the field but he's certainly is shit not like that on the field and i i'd like to see a little bit more fire from those guys but starting pitchers are weird uh, in baseball, they kind of have that bulldog mentality when they go out there and they're kind of micro-focused on what they need to do. Uh, Keone Keone Kell, I put there. Yeah. I think Keone Kell fits Keone Kell is also a hothead for other reasons. But, you know, we're, we're, uh, all those boys in the discussion from last year. But uh, th- I think you're right, Ryan. I don't, I don't, where's the personality on this team? I, I don't know that Key Brian Hayes has it. He seems more of a composed kind of a quiet dude and, and that's fine it's not there's a problem with that but there's no brash there's no outlandish type attitude you don't have like a Ronald Acuna you don't have a guy like that on this team that is going to spark energy for fans maybe Josh Bell was like that in the past but the guy can't field for shit at first base and he can't hit right now either and the guy's going to be 30 years old in a couple years and I don't think he'll be in his 20s by the time the Pirates have a winning season again uh, so I don't know if he's even a trade chip for next year, that he's a possibility to get moved. I don't see him as one, or maybe that they won't get as much of a ransom for him as they would have in his first half in 2019. Uh, but, you know, I guess we have to wait and see when it comes to the offseason for the Pirates and what they're able to do beyond Kumar Rocker, no matter what, scribbled down on a post-it note in Ben Charrington's office uh, for the 2020 MLB draft, which or the 2021 draft, which is apparently going to happen in the middle of the year that'll coincide, I believe, with the All-Star break is what reports are saying uh, that that might uh, be when up what's happening instead of in the beginning of June. But uh, we'll have to see uh, in regards to that. I don't know. We, do we have anything else from a Pirates perspective that we need to cover as an autopsy to the 2020 year? I think one, one more point I have is I think a guy who can bring that personality but he needs to perform on the field first is Cole Tucker, as much as we all harp on him. He got a lot of flack for trying to learn – the outfield at the MLB level on the fly this, this past year. Um, and obviously, I mean, he's a good looking kid. He has the hair cut for loves posting gifts of his hair. So if he can start to be more of an everyday MLB player, I think he'd be a great personality for the pirates. But speaking of the draft, how electric would it be if they draft rocker and then the first game that they can start him, they throw him right in the MLB level. You want to inject good or bad into your team and say, hey, we're going to believe in our players. Throw him out there if they think he's ready. I don't know that he is ready. (laughs) I'll say that. I mean, I I like the idea, kind of put some energy into Pittsburgh and into a fan base that is begging for it at this point. So I don't hate the idea, but uh, I think he probably needs a year in in double A. I mean, I think he's a double A pitcher right now. He's probably good enough to step in now. What if he comes in and debuts and gives up six runs in two innings? What oh, does that do to his confidence? Fan base will shred him just like they. He's done. Yeah, he's done. Hey, Roy Halladay got sent down to the minors, came back up, and became the Roy Halladay we all know. So, it works and it doesn't work. Yeah, we'll have to see about that with whether it's Kumar Rocker, whoever the Pirates end up selecting in the 2021 MLB Amateur Draft at number one overall. That said, let's switch over. And let's kind of talk the MLB as a whole. We've all got opinions of what's going on in the league. There are several other things that are going on in Major League Baseball as well, including we mentioned earlier we're recording this as the Oakland Athletics and Houston Astros are playing game one of their ALDS series. Uh, But there are, of course, several things that are going on in the MLB to talk about. 
Minnesota's playoff exit is, of course, one of them that will be brought up here. Uh, the Astros and their cheating scandal and Carlos Correa being, being a big D-bag in his press conference after they beat the Minnesota Twins is something that's on the ledger. But, uh, Joe, we'll start with you. Just bring up, uh, what I guess, whatever it is that you want to bring up about the MLB season as a whole or, or the state of the MLB right now. Yeah, you know, I'm getting really sick of the free true outcomes, which are home runs, strikeouts, and walks. Going through even the most entertaining games of this postseason so far, you look at the Braves-Reds game, game one, that was one nothing. Atlanta won in 13 innings, or something like 36 strikeouts in that game. Strikeouts get a little boring after a while. The Yankees-Indians game, too, which saw New York eliminate Cleveland, Playoff record for walks. Walks are never exciting. And then in game two of the NLDS between San Diego and St. Louis, there were, I think, five home runs. And even home runs can get boring after seeing so many of them. I think going back to before the Astros shit got uncovered, before the pandemic, obviously, the biggest problem I had with baseball is that there's too many home runs too many strikeouts and too many walks. And I think even in the more entertaining games of this postseason thus far, the free true outcomes are running rampant, and I hope that that's something that kind of mellows out as the rest of these playoffs go on. So there's been a lot of good, I think, from a casual fan standpoint. With By casual, I mean no rooting interest, and I think that's where we all are since the Pirates obviously didn't sniff the postseason. There's been a lot of good things for – the average baseball fan to watch, that, whether that be Fernando Tatis Jr. and how much he's dominated, whether that be Trevor Bauer and how good he was, even though the Reds got eliminated. There's a lot of good stuff there. But my main takeaway from what's been of the postseason thus far is that the free true outcomes are running rampant, and they've been running rampant, rampant far too often over the past five years or so. And Anything gets stall after you see it enough times. And I think we've seen far too many strikeouts, walks, and even home runs over the past few years. And I'd like to see some more triples, some more stolen bases, um, some more, I guess, creativity, because there isn't too much creative about 98-mile-an-hour fastball that a guy swings and misses at. Um, so, yeah, free true outcomes are kind of getting stale, and they've been getting stale for a long time. They don't help pace of play, and I just think that everything needs to be done in moderation. You sound like Rob Manfred right now, bitching about pace of play. No, I'm kidding. Uh, you mean you didn't, t- you didn't like watching the Cincinnati Reds leave a million and a half guys on base in a game because they couldn't hit a damn fly ball or a ground ball to advance a run? No. You no, thought it was, I, no, I didn't. I thought that we were supposed to hit home runs. Chicks dig the long ball, Joe. It was entertaining watching Cincinnati <laughs> find ways not to score. But as I said, my main problem with that game is that there were too many damn strikeouts. Like I, Okay, so strikeouts can be entertaining to an extent. Obviously, nobody looks at Kerry Wood striking out 20 Houston Astros in 1998 and said, oh, man, that was boring. I wish that didn't happen. But when you see a game where so many pitchers are being used and every pitcher, it seems, is able to strike people out, granted – it's a credit to how good pitchers are, how hard they can throw, and how spin rates um, have become more and more of a thing over the past few years. But then again, you want to see guys make contact. You definitely rather see a double in the gap than you want to strike out. You'd rather see a triple than you want to strike out. We're not seeing a lot of triples. You'd rather see a guy get on base that has the ability to steal bases and is willing to steal bases. You're not seeing really 40, 50 base stealers anymore the way you were. So, yeah, I think everything is fine to an extent. Strikeouts can be fun in certain cases. Home runs obviously can be a lot of fun. Uh, Walks, I guess, sometimes can be entertaining. But if it's done too much, it gets stale. And all three of those things have been just absolutely kind of, I don't want to say ruining baseball, but definitely taking a lot of the enjoyment out of baseball when one of those things is happening far too often in a certain game. Are you going to start you know, talking about shifts now? No, I, I hope he doesn't. But I'm so glad he brought up the Cincinnati game. because No, shifts are fine. Shifts are fine. This, this is where I get to get under Dawson's skin. Um, speaking of Cincinnati at Atlanta, 
Um, one Alex Rodriguez was the color commentator for such game. And there was an instance where Dansby Swanson was on first base and there was nobody out. And it was a great time to lay down a bunt. Yet Atlanta refused to lay down a bunt. And going off of what Joe just said about the three true outcomes, and there were way too many strikeouts in that game, the hardest hit ball in that game was Acuna's double off Bauer, which Acuna ended up getting stranded at second base. If you're in a playoff game that it's a best of three series, like the fact that we didn't even see a bunt attempt from Atlanta or Cincinnati is mind-boggling. Like I, like I said, I'm for the numbers, but there's a certain time where you have to throw the numbers out the window and use baseball logic. That's why baseball logic exists. If you're in the 10th or 11th inning, put the pressure on the defense to make a play. Like you are absolutely ruining yourselves. And that is something that I think the Reds absolutely could have done because you have Votto who's a power hitter. You have Castellanos who's a power hitter. You have Suarez who's a power hitter. Have one of those guys try to lay a bunt down for crying out loud. Like do something different. Try to make a difference besides standing there taking your walk or swinging and missing like a moron. You know what I would have loved to see during Alex Rodriguez's career as a New York Yankee? Screw the 700 home runs that he hit. I'd have liked to see him lay down 700 sacrifice bunts. But here's, here's the disagreement with the A-Rod thing. Just because <laughs> A-Rod did not lay down bunts, that doesn't mean he was against laying down bunts. But people like, were shredding him and, and because he was crap. saying that so much on the broadcast. It was just like, what in an A-Rod bunt? Because so, A-Rod hit 700 home runs in his career, whatever it ended up being. Yeah. I don't want that guy laying down a bunt. I don't want Joey Votto laying down a bunt when they shift him to the right. All he has to do is swing and hit a slapper towards third base, and he's going to get on base. There are times where a sacrifice bunt is good, and I think there were probably times for Cincinnati and Atlanta in that game. Multiple times. But we I think, are I think, I think if Jeter bunted, he'd be the best bunter of all time. That's true. He, he played for the Yankees, and then the flip, dude. He, he crashed into the stands the one time. So if he would have bunted – so all four of us, I think, to an extent, believe in analytics. I know, Ryan, you're huge on analytics. I'm pretty big on analytics. Uh, we all agree that they have a place in the game, that teams should use them, that they should use them heavily, that they've helped teams win in the past few years. We can think of several examples of teams that have won championships largely due to their knowledge and expertise in using analytics effectively. But for the casual fan, not talking about people like us that love to talk about baseball or love to put our thoughts uh, in public view. For the casual baseball fan, which we all agree baseball has had a lot of trouble attracting casual fans, much more trouble than the NBA or definitely the NFL has. Do you think analytics are good for the game as far as attracting just the average uh, Tom, Tim, or Joe as opposed to people that are diehards that are going to love baseball no matter what? No matter what, do you think analytics from a viewing standpoint can be a turnoff into what baseball is and what the quality and entertainment value of the game is? I don't, I, I don't think they can. I think there's probably a lot of people, younger age, our age, casual people, baseball fans who they're not going to be turned off by watching a team shift on, I don't know, 10 of 20 batters just to, for argument's sake. I don't think that people are going to get upset about guys trying to swing to hit the ball out of the ballpark. Uh, I think, if anything, the casual fan isn't there because sort of like the NHL, but to a much lesser degree, the MLB doesn't market its stars very well. And I think if you even don't have analytics, that still is going to stay the same. I don't know that uh, 98% of the a casual baseball fan, they know who Mike Trout is, unlike in the NHL where they might not know who a, a Connor McDavid is uh, for Edmonton. But I think – from a large point of view, I don't, I don't think the analytics are a huge deal. I think that you're going to turn off some fans with that, but I don't know that you turn off most casual fans as long as they're not, uh, I guess, to, to, I don't know, maybe not being shoved down your throat or, or something else that's happening with analytics. I don't see them as a big deal, though. No, see, I think that's, that's the point that I agree with is in baseball – analytics are so much more prevalent than in any other sport. I mean, we have Moneyball made. Either uh, they're pre the pretty version. big in basketball, too. Well, they are, but it's, it's much harder to find in those sports. Like, the MLB doing the StatCast broadcast is something that's great for the hardcore fan, like us four. But for the average Joe who's going to sit there and watch a Sunday night baseball game, 
they could care less about the special the special presentation of Sunday night baseball that night. I think that's where the divide could happen is the MLB is trying to market the analytic revolution as its own being where in the NFL or in the NBA, it's not as promoted because they don't have to promote it. They don't have to use that as a bargaining chip for people to watch. Like there are probably hundreds of kids across the country who want to get into sports and they're not athletic enough. So they see analytics as a way to get into sports. I am one of those kids. That's why I'm making this argument. I was not athletic enough to play after high school. That is how I'm going to continue my career in sports. So where you have these kids who want to pursue careers in sports but aren't athletic, math and science are a way to do that. You have uh, biomechanics. You have general physics. You have regular math class and stuff like that, like sports management kids who want to go and run teams. That is going to happen regardless. The, the kids who watch the NBA and the NFL, they're not looking for – oh, how fast does this guy run his 40 or how, how far did he run this route? I mean, I was watching Red Zone yesterday and they were talking about Thielen catching a ball on the left hash and running 99 yards on just a simple slant route because he was running all over the field. That's cool to me. My dad could care less about that kind of shit. Like, that's not stuff that's going to appeal to the average Joe who's going to sit there and watch the game every week. I think that is where baseball is losing even more fans is they're trying to push these numbers down people's throats that don't even care about them in the first place. I think Mike Trout is a great example because you think about how people explain Mike Trout's greatness, and you kind of have to use stats like War and OPS Plus to kind of illustrate how good Mike Trout is, but you compare him to other great baseball players. Mickey Mantle, for example, much more broad in explaining his greatness. Oh, he's the Oklahoma kid, seven World Series championships, played for a team that was the biggest franchise in sports at the time. Barry Bonds, 762 home runs. Don't need to explain too much there. Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, the home run chase of 1998. Joe DiMaggio, the first Italian-American that was really a true sports hero, had great cultural significance that went beyond baseball. Babe Ruth helped save the game of baseball after the Blackhawks, Black Sox scandal. So in explaining greatness of the other kind of household names in Major League Baseball lore, you don't really have to talk about like what Babe Ruth's wins above replacement was in 1922 to illustrate how much of a how important Babe Ruth was to the game, and you kind of have to do that with Mike Trout, and that's I think a huge reason why Mike Trout hasn't blown up and isn't anywhere near the level of star that LeBron James is in the NBA or Tom Brady is in the NFL is because it's much easier to explain why LeBron is great and why uh, Brady is great, why Payne Manning and other star athletes that we've watched in our lifetime are great. But for Trout, you kind of have to dig a little deeper and explain, like, stats that most people don't care about. Maybe that's not fair, but Mike Trout, at the end of the day, unless he ends up winning a few World Series championships, which I don't, I don't think is very likely considering where the Angels are now and where they have been, unless things start to happen where Trout can appeal to more the average fan, his greatness is going to lie more in what he can do from a deep statistical standpoint as, a far, as far as to how he was culturally and personality-wise significant. Because it's much easier to explain a guy winning seven World Series championships than it is having the highest war through the age of 28 or whatever. Just analytics-driven, that's what Trout is, and that's why I think he hasn't blown up the way baseball fans would like. Yeah, Joe, I 100% agree with that, uh, you know, because saying that our generation uh, is completely different than what our parents are used to. I know Ryan brought up his dad. My dad would feel the, the same way um, about some of the new numbers that everybody has to look at. My, my dad has zero care in the world about what a baseball player's war is. He just – cares if he's a good baseball player or not and he does a lot of people in that generation do it with their eyes instead of just going to stats day in and day out but I, I kind of I want to flip this a little bit um, to the Houston Astros uh, Carlos Correa after the Astros won the series against the Minnesota Twins last week you know he decided to come out and be a tough guy and pretty much question everybody for 
the whole cheating scandal saying, well, what's everyone's excuse going to be now? You know, you guys can't say anything about us now. Uh, but in my opinion, I just think he's a jackass for that because, A, you won two games. You didn't play a true playoff series that, you know, in 2020 you're not going to get. B, you played a team that hasn't won a, a playoff series, a playoff game since what, like 2006? Uh, Joe, you're the baseball expert. I don't even know the last time the Twins won a real playoff game. Two, so, two, 2003. So, so even better. That, that, that didn't prove shit to me. I mean, they, they won two baseball games. The, the Pirates, for all we know, could go into somewhere and win two baseball games and the worst damn team in the league. They won like four straight to end the year. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I just think that that furthers the, the Astros as a whole as just being a, like a group of assholes and that, you know, nothing has been proven, at least to me. You know, we'll see what they can do against the, the A's. If they get past them, we'll see what they can do against the Rays or Yankees. But uh, I think everybody out there, unless they live in Houston or they've been a, a diehard Astros fan for their whole lives, everybody is rooting for the Oakland Athletics. I just think that to that point, I don't get Carlos Correa coming out and attacking the, the haters, I guess, if you will. That's a team that was under 500 during the regular season. All of their guys had next to career-low batting averages, maybe because they didn't have a guy banging a damn trash can in center field to tell them exactly what was coming and the pitches that they were going to see. And, and to me, I just don't understand, what does he have to gain out of coming out and saying what he did and trying to shit on fans for uh, the, the Astros shaming tour that is, is happening in 2020? And I'd be the first one to tell you I like some of the players that are on the Astros. And Alex Bregman is a guy that I like watching a lot. Uh, and the Astros right now, keep in mind, are doing without Justin Verlander, without some of their other big pieces on the pitching staff. But I just uh, – I agree with you, Donnie. I don't, I don't get why Carlos Correa would come out say what he did. I don't think they have anything to gain from it. I think they just have everything to lose from it. And they just exactly, as you said, look like bigger assholes as a result of the situation because they're basically, oh, well, we have something to prove now and, and we're going to prove you wrong. And, and on one hand, internally, that might work out. But on the outside, I just don't see that appealing to any baseball fan. Well, let's talk a little bit about the situation Donnie brought up with, with the Minnesota Twins. Uh, you've got to really – be in some bad shit to lose 18 consecutive playoff games. I mean, that's not something that happens from in any sport, let alone in, in the game of baseball, where I think you can swing that kind of streak over pretty easily. But everything goes wrong for the Twins. Joe mentioned since 2003, uh, they have the error in the ninth inning of game one. They end up walking in a run. I think Sergio Romo became the first player ever or something like this to walk in the tying run in the ninth inning of a playoff game or – I know it was his. I think it was his first uh, job of walking in the tying run in the ninth inning of a game in his career. But what a disaster the Twins, the Twins had against the Houston Astros. And, and man, you almost feel like that's never going to end now as it sits at 18 consecutive. Even though the, the franchise and, and the organization's done a really good job in cultivating talent and preparing that to go on the field. Yeah, considering what the Twins have had to work with over the past two decades or so, I think. They're probably pound for pound one of the better organizations in Major League Baseball because they're able to put a consistent winner on the field despite um, not having the luxury of being able to sign uh, any free agent they want to the way a team like the Yankees or the Red Sox or the Chicago Cubs I probably put Atlanta in that category too. Um, they definitely don't have that advantage as far as their bank account goes. But losing 18 straight playoff games is just weird. Like. I don't really know how to describe it other than, like, it shouldn't happen. It's a, a non anomaly. I don't know if we'll ever see it again unless the Twins lose a few more playoff games, which I certainly wouldn't put that past them considering how bad this franchise has been in October over the past almost 20 years. And I guess something that could make fans feel a little better about the Twins is that I don't remember any point in our lifetime where they've been a World Series favorite. Even last year when they won over 100 games, I think that the Yankees were big-time favorites to advance out of the NLD ALDS and beat the Twins, and they definitely did that. Um, I think probably the weirdest thing, and this doesn't apply to this postseason, was that every time the Twins have been good, 
between 2003 and 2019, so about the present date, they lose two to New York Yankees. 2003, they lost to the Yankees. 04, lost to the Yankees. 2009, lost to the Yankees. 2010, lost to the Yankees. And in 2019, they flipped the script by losing to the Yankees. So whether it be the early part of the 2000s, the late part of the 2000s, the late part of the 2010s, every time the Twins were good, and there were a lot of years where they were bad, but whenever they were good, they'd face the Yankees and they'd lose, and they'd often lose in three games, in straight sets to use tennis terminology. So this year was a little different in that they lost to the Astros. Um, to be honest, and I had nothing against the Twins, I was kind of hoping they'd get to the – it would have been the ALCS and lose to the Yankees again just to keep the trend going. I wanted to see how long they can keep up just losing to New York every time they've gone to the playoffs. But it's, uh, it's a bummer, uh, definitely a bummer for Minnesota. And as I said before, I have no reason not to like the Twins. But whenever they get into the postseason, part of me is going to root for them to lose just to see how long this streak can last. Can they make it to 20 games? Can they get to 25 games? Maybe they even get to 30 games. Maybe this streak extends to when I'm married, which that probably have to go a really long time. I don't know. Alex <laughs> Kirloff will probably – Alex Kirloff's probably going to be retired and maybe in the Hall of Fame at that point. But I want I kind of want to see how, how much the Twins can lose and how long they can keep the streak going, even though that sounds kind of mean-spirited, especially – since I don't think anybody outside of maybe another AL Central fan base has any reason not to like the Minnesota Twins. I think, well, Josh Donaldson's kind of a douche, but other than that, um, the Twins are fine by me. But at the same time, you kind of want to see history, whether that be good history or bad history. I'm sure there were a lot of people that wanted to see if the Pirates could make it to 25 losing seasons in a row. Uh, and the Twins, I'm kind of in that same boat. I want to see how much they can lose before they finally win a playoff game because it's unfortunate, but it's pretty damn entertaining too at this point. It's almost like the, the Buffalo Bills Super Bowl run. I mean, the great uh, doc that ESPN did on them kind of depicted how after the first two Super Bowl losses, when Buffalo was going back to the third one, people were kind of like, oh, well, they're going to lose again. And then they made it to the fourth one. And they were like, well, we got to root against them now. Like it's, it's kind yeah, of the and not, not to cut you off, but there were a lot of Bills fans that I'm, I'm sure, like, maybe didn't even want the Bills to go to the Super Bowl because they, they knew how the script was going to end. It's like, just put us out of our misery. I don't, I don't know if any Twins fans are going to root for them to not make the play. And just to look back at the last time the Twins won a playoff game, here are some names in their lineup, just to go down memory lane really quick. Pirates legend, Doug Mankiewicz. Uh, 28-year-old Torrey Hunter. We have 23-year-old Justin Morneau, also Pirates legend, and – 21-year-old Joe Maurer, and then, of course, somebody who, I mean, I think he should be in the Hall of Fame just because of how dominant he was, good old Johan Santana, who just went 20-6 and six because wins mean a lot, 20-6 and six with a 2-6-1 ERA. That is the last time the Twins won a playoff game, which is just hilarious. Well, they've got a new piece up there, and we made sure we want to hit on this as well as we head towards the conclusion of episode 21 here of the Come On Network podcast, but they have a name up there now, and they've got some more coming on the way in the pipeline in Minnesota. But Alex Kirloff, a native of Pittsburgh, uh, went to Plum High School. I guess he didn't really go to Plum High School. He was homeschooled. But either way, he played at Plum High School, uh, ended up being a, a mid-round, first-round draft pick by the Minnesota Twins back after he graduated in 2016. And he makes his MLB debut uh, in the postseason and becomes the third player ever to make his Major League Baseball debut uh, in the postseason, ends up having his first hit, which I believe he became the first player ever to do that, uh, his first big league hit come in the postseason and up over 100 exit velocity. Uh, the ball was mashed. He played a little uh, good right field in game two of that series against the Houston Astros. But uh, I know one that you guys are probably excited to see, and I can touch on why I'm excited to see it um, as a plum guy myself. But uh, that's got to be something that we, at least as Pittsburgh guys, can look forward to watching over the next several years. Yeah, it's always cool to see those guys come from this area around the WPIAL. I know we have so many guys that make it to the NFL. Uh, there are always a handful of WPIAL players that infiltrate into the National Football League. Uh, not as many in baseball, uh, but anytime you see that, 
uh, you really can't help but to, to root for the kid. Yeah, and I thought Kirilov actually looked pretty damn good um, in his debut. Uh, granted, uh, most Twins fans, um, maybe not most, but I think a decent bit of them will probably think back to that game and remember his first set bat, which came with the bases loaded in two outs. Unfortunately, he was not able to come through there. But um, other than that, you know, he got a hit, which it's was, would be very conceivable considering I don't think he had played in a baseball game for more than a year. Very conceivable to think he'd take an over in his MLB debut, but he didn't do that. He had a great diving catch in the outfield. Um, and I think he really kind of showed a lot of aspects of what he might be able to do for the Twins. So it's great to see a local kid doing well. I'm sure it's more special for you, Kyle, than it is for any of us because um, of the personal connection. But uh, not oh, him being a local kid aside is that this is a guy that has had a lot of bouts with injuries over the past few years. Um, didn't play in a major league game or any professional baseball game for more than a year. And then he's finally able to come back and he's kind of thrusted definitely a baptism by fire in the MLB playoffs and he's able to hold his own. So I think it's good to see uh, the twins do have a good pipeline of major leaguers of minor leaguers, excuse me, um, a top 10 minor league system for sure. And I'm excited to see if Kirilov can play a big role for the Minnesota twins in 2021 and beyond. I think the twins are going to be, a good team for a number of years down the road and players like him that they're able to develop them are going to be part of the reason why, if they're able to keep this run of success going. Yeah, I think it it was a lot more special for me and I I don't want to sit here and on an episode of a podcast and get overly sappy about it, but uh, it was uh, something that I was looking forward to uh, since I met the kid and he was 15 years old when we met uh, him coming into Plum High School as a freshman, like I said, he was homeschooled, so it wasn't like he was in school every day. But uh, we had heard rumors for a couple of weeks about uh, this stud kid that could hit the ball a mile uh, and field the ball, pitch the ball that was going to come to Plum High School um, and play with us my senior year. And he ends up coming in, in freshman year, and he was one of the best players in, in the WPIL, which isn't a huge surprise. Uh, quiet kid back then, of course, he's 15 years old at the time. So we're down in Florida. Um, and he obviously made a pretty big impact early on in that season for the Mustangs, but uh, he, we were just trying to break him out of his shell a little bit. I don't know that I don't know the personality now uh, as compared to what it was when I was playing with him his freshman year of high school, my senior year. But uh, that was a friendship that I've I've held pretty close to my heart uh, for years and years since I met Alex in, in 2013, and uh, that was a really really cool sight to see and watching him uh, not only rise through the ranks in MILB and deal with the injuries and the adversity that he's dealt with over the years, uh, but to watch him to not only get called up but to be thrust into the role that he had in Game Two of the the uh, Wild Card Series with the Astros there, and then to see him get his first hit. I mean, I was I'm sitting in the office at Was- the Washington Wild things and watching the game on my computer, and I had already told. Uh, Tony, who's our general manager, and, and everyone else who was there, hey, listen, I'm, I'm incapacitated from about 1 o'clock to, to 4 o'clock because I want to watch this. Uh, it was a really important moment to me, and I'm, I'm really, really glad that I got to see uh, that performance and, and happy for him because I know he's, he's earned it, and there's not a better kid uh, out there and a kid that deserves it more than and the 22-year-old uh, that will be up hopefully with the Twins uh, for good now. I don't know that he'll be up permanently because he still hasn't played a game in AAA, but uh, certainly a good first showing and, and maybe the world stage uh, can give him a little bit of exposure now. But uh, that said, we, we do have one more topic we want to cover here before the end of episode 21 of the Come On Network podcast, our MLB recap, uh, Pirates recap type episode. But the, the last topic, when we have to touch on this at some point in the next couple of weeks, so we may as well do it now. MILB is about to lose 40 teams or more uh, with the MLB contracting. They've already announced partnerships uh, with the Atlantic League extending with the American Association and Frontier League. The Appalachian League, which is a rookie ball league, is headed to College Summer League as part of USA Baseball. It's all this idea of Rob Manfred and Major League Baseball controlling all of baseball and it being one big conglomerate. And I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on what's pending and about to happen in the next couple of weeks. The contract's already over with MLB and MILB. So it's happening. It's a matter of what else trickles down. And it's not going to be announced until after the World Series because they don't want the bad pub and probably good on them for doing that. Uh, but thoughts on, on the situation with MILB? Well, I think it hurts a lot of small towns uh, in the United States. Um, you know, covering minor league baseball, I know it was at the, the – low single a level 
but you see a handful of those small towns that will now no longer uh, have a minor league baseball team and no longer have something that, you know, brings money to that town's economy. So I, I think it hurts that. It will also hurt, uh, you know, for the kids in that in those towns and just for the families in those towns. It'll it'll hurt their baseball fandom, uh, in my opinion, because you're, you're taking baseball teams away from towns that are in the suburbs of New York, the suburbs of Buffalo, uh, you know, places like State College, places, uh, you know, like Youngstown, Ohio. It's going to hurt uh, baseball. You know, I, I think that the, the small towns of baseball are really going to hurt from this, but, you know, hopefully there's a rebound. And I, I think that, you know, having the Frontier League and, and things like that more involved with the MLB that that could help uh, help suit that, but I, I do think that there are plenty of towns that are missing out now uh, for years to come on just minor league baseball and, and just the the whole effects that it'll have. Yeah, I think baseball more so than any other sport relies on community. There's a lot of people I'm sure that have never been to a college or professional football game, but. I'd be hard pre- you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody, I think, that's never been to a baseball game, whether it be at the major league level or the minor league level. Um, I think it's definitely, from a major league standpoint, you have 81 home games a year, so there's a lot more opportunity to get to a game, regardless of your level of interest in the sport. And then minor league is kind of the same way. There's a lot of towns that don't have a team like the Pirates, don't have a Cleveland Indians. Like, for example, the Albuquerque Isotopes in New Mexico. Where are you going to go to a baseball game if you live in Albuquerque, New Mexico, if you're not going to watch the Isotopes? You're not gonna, you don't have a major league team nearby. So there's a lot of towns like Albuquerque that don't have big league ball within a however many mile radius and their best chances to go watch a minor league game. And if you take that away, how are people going to develop a love for the game of baseball? Sure, you have television. You can watch Major League Baseball on television, but it's definitely not the same as going there as a little kid, like eating your cotton candy, getting your hot dog uh, for $5, or maybe it's a dollar if you're lucky and it's a promotion. Um, Singing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, watching the uh, the great hamburger race or whatever the fuck they're going to have between innings. Um, it just like watching sports and baseball in particular on TV is not the same as if you're at the act, at the actual game and being at the actual game is a lot harder for people that don't live within a half hour of the city of Pittsburgh, the way a lot of us do. And if you don't have a minor league team and you're living in one of those locations, how are you going to get to a professional baseball game? So not having those teams is very sad. It hurts the community. It hurts baseball. And it just sucks, plain and simple. Yeah, I can agree there, Joe. I mean, I was fortunate enough to go to Penn State Altoona, where the Altoona Curve are, and the drive to the stadium was 10 minutes for me. And then, once again, as Donnie mentioned, like uh, the State College Spikes, who's the Cardinals affiliate, single A team, their campus, their stadium, excuse me, is on Penn State's campus. So I was able to go to games for a dollar and go and get dollar hot dogs and sit there and watch a baseball game with my buddies and just relax. Um, but yeah, it's very sad. I mean. I completely feel for those communities and feel for the people who work in those stadiums and rely on that income as a part-time job, maybe. Um, but I'm, I'm interested to see the rest of the cuts that come. Uh, as you said, Kyle, I mean, they're not going to announce it until after the World Series is over. Um, and who knows what Major League Baseball is going to look like as a whole entity. I mean, we're all wrestling fans here, and this is exactly what Vince was doing back in the day, buying up all the territory. So who knows what it's going to look like in 2020 or 2021 baseball. But all we got to do is uh, kind of wait and watch at this point. Yeah, and some of those teams will end up being an independent ball or, or playing in college summer. So they're not all going to lose their, their summer teams anyway. But that, that'll be a developing story over the next couple of weeks. Just wanted to make sure we hit on that on a, what was episode 21 of the Come On Network podcast, kind of our baseball uh, recap, if you will, here in 2020. And now we get set to go back to our Steelers and our NFL content. We'll have some more content coming your way, podcast form in the next couple of weeks, but that does it for episode 21. As always, thanks for the subscribes, the streams, the downloads, the ratings, reviews. You can find us on any device that gets internet or wherever you get and consume your podcast, be that Apple, Spotify, Anchor, or another. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Come On Network. 
You can also find us on the web, comeon.network, blog stories and all kinds of good stuff on the website as well, including merch that is just about to arrive in the next couple of days. So thanks to Donnie, thanks to Joe, thanks to Ryan. I'm Kyle Dawson. Until next time on the Come On Network podcast, stay safe, stay happy, and come on.